All right. Um, if you have your Bible open and find Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Uh, we've been, I feel like we've been away from it for a minute. Um, we were away from it last week because we had the privilege of having Dr. Jim Hamilton here as our teacher. Uh, and he taught, he took this, this uh, hour last week and taught through the book of Psalms. Um, and it was really remarkable. It was, uh, if you were not here to hear that uh, and, and didn't hear it, uh, it's up on our podcast, and I would strongly, you need to listen to it, uh, probably more than once. And for that matter, if you were here last week and heard it, you need to hear it also again on our podcast. I've listened to it again, probably will do it more than one. He, he, he packed a lot in there then you can get in one listen, but uh, it lesson. It's, it's one of the best overviews of the book of Psalms that I've ever heard, and it'll make you want to spend a lot of time in the Psalms, immerse yourself in it, and even as he challenged us to do to, to, um, to memorize the Psalms, since we know scripture memory is never a waste of time, it's maybe the best way that God has given us to meditate on his word day and night. It's, it's, um, it's, it's one of the ways that we can hide it in his heart that we might not sin against him, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119. But anyway, we're back in, in Romans chapter 4 this morning. This is a chapter that we started three weeks ago before fall retreat. So for me, it feels like forever ago. Um, and for that reason, I'm going to do a little bit of, of review before we dive into our text this morning. It was in the, at the end of chapter 3 that the emphasis sort of changed in, in, in the letter. Uh, remember that Paul made it unmistakably clear at the beginning of the letter, at the outset, even in the opening words, that the theme of this letter was going to be the gospel. I mean, he used the word gospel so many times in these opening words, building up to that, that thematic um, thesis statement of the book of Romans in verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Uh, he says that, but then these first three chapters were pretty relentless in laying the necessary groundwork for the good news of that gospel to appear as good news when it does. So with chapter 1, it demonstrated that the Gentile world were sinners against God and in need of the salvation provided through the gospel. Chapter 2 was showing the same thing about the Jews that's going to reach this um, this, uh, this terrible crescendo in chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the, that's the, last, that's the last you know, stone in the stonework of this foundation for the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of glorifying God as He deserves, are justly under His wrath. That, though... Like I said, finish the groundwork so that in the very next verse he could turn his, his, his words to the gospel. Like in 324, talking about, he can now talk about the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How is that redemption provided in Christ Jesus? Because 325 told us that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation for our sins, meaning that he, his sacrifice, his, his offering himself on the cross. Uh, was made to remove the, the wrath of God, the just wrath of God against us who have sinned, made so clearly in the first three chapters. 
And then he introduced, having said that, the, talk about the work of Christ on behalf of sinners. At the, at the very end of chapter 3, he then turned his, um, his thoughts to one of the most central doctrines of the Christ, Christian faith. I mentioned this three weeks ago, but it's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. This gift of a righteous standing, this gift of a righteous standing before God based on Jesus' work. Um, that is, that we receive through trust, trusting in His work on your behalf for your salvation. It's that, it's that doctrine of justification by faith alone that would then come to dominate the next two chapters of this letter. Chapters 4 and 5. Um, and we've already begun to see that in the first half of chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 that we looked at three weeks ago, where, thinking back to the first half of this chapter, Paul, using Abraham as the example, he focused on the justification part of justification by faith alone. He highlighted the justification part of, of, that, of that idea. That, and, and from those verses, verses 1 through 12, we saw that justification is not something that we earn or, or, or merit. This is basic, but we need to hear it as many times as the, the Bible will put it in, in, in our face. Right? Justification, this, this gift of a righteous standing before God, is not something that we earn. He makes this clear through Abraham. You know, it's not something we earn or, or, or merit. This is something that God, the word He uses, he counts to us. He reckons to us. He imputes to us. He credits to us. It's a gift to us based on the work of another for us. That is Christ Jesus. We saw in those early verses that, that justification uh, is, is impartial. He made that point because of Abraham who came prior to the law, the giving of the law, that he, that he, that he was reckoned as righteous before he was even circumcised. He made this point that, that uh, the justification is therefore impartial for Jew and Gentile alike, for the circumcised and the uncircumcised, right? That no one, no one apart from repentance and faith has a leg up before God or, or has a better standing or a better chance than another uh, to be justified. We saw also in those verses that the fruit of justification is ongoing repentance and faith, not perfect faith as if we're justified based on the pristineness of our faith. But that's why we say it's ongoing repentance and faith. We know we're still going to battle sin all our life long, but the fruit of a justified person is that it's not we go on believing, we also go on repenting, right? That's the fruit of it. Well, here we're, today we're coming to the second half of chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 25. And um, not surprisingly, since I just said this, this doctrine is going to dominate the next two chapters. Paul is not changing subject here. But now, in the second half, I think he's, whereas he was in the first half um, focusing on the justification part of justification by faith alone, now he's going to zoom in on the faith part of justification by faith alone. Um, there is plenty for us to see in these verses, I think more than we can adequately or comfortably cover and explain in the amount of time that we have, but we're going to try to see clearly the main things that Paul has for us. So let's read it, and, uh, and then we'll dive in. So follow along as I read aloud, beginning in verse 13, reading through the end of the chapter. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be 
heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations in the, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls, existence, calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. That's Genesis 17, 17. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words in Genesis 15:6, it was counted to him, we're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from, raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, this is a beautiful passage. This is a rich, a rich passage that you've left to us. It just, when we read it, it just makes it, it, attest, it attests to itself that what we just read is your holy and inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Um, your word attests to itself that it is that. And I ask that, that because of, of the, that reality and because of what it, is we're, what it is we're trying to understand here, would you please give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you please give us um, eyes to see it in the first place? Would you give us hearts to really embrace and m make our own and receive fully what he is saying here? And would you give us wills to obey what, it, what we are admonished to do in these words? And would you please give us all ears to hear? And would you give me the help that I need to teach? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here's what I would like us to see in this passage. As Paul is discussing justifying faith, again, if, if the first half was about justification and this, this half is about the faith that justifies, um, I think there are three clear movements in this passage that, that are pretty apparent when you read it carefully. Um, three different movements, three different shades of what Paul is emphasizing throughout the text. Those different movements kind of make their own point as well. So there are three points. If you're taking notes, here's what, here's what I mean by that. The first movement is kind of verse, verses 13 to 16, um, and we're just going to consider the way of faith, the way of faith in verses 13 to 16. This is Paul simply reiterating some things that he's already said in the first part of the chapter. That it, what is most basic about justifying faith? That it is grace through faith, not merit through works. That is Christianity 101. We never need to graduate from that. 
So verses 13 to 16, the way of faith. And then secondly, the second movement is verses 17 through 22. Um, and here, and I'm, we're going to see the, the, the walk of faith. This is Paul zooming in closely on the life of Abraham and how he walked by faith in the promise that God gave to him that he would send a Savior, but send a Savior through a son that he would supernaturally give to him and his wife, Sarah. That's, this is a really uh, interesting and encouraging, I think, part of this passage. And then finally, from the last uh, few verses, verses 23 to 25, where I'm going to try to explain what I mean by the witness of faith. And in this point, I want to try to, to take what Paul says and how he applies it to us today and see not only uh, the application that it is to us, but also if we take a, a little closer look, we can see how Abraham was always pointing forward to what we now enjoy through his faith. His faith was itself bearing witness in what we now enjoy. I'll try to make that more clearly when we come to it. But let's start at the beginning, verses 13 to 16, and think about the way of faith. Like I said, Paul's not in, he's not introducing anything new in these, in these verses. He's just re, reaffirming an emphasis he's already made. And to see the basic contrast that he's making, just follow along as I, again as I read verses 13 to 16 one more time. Um, it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but came through the righteousness of faith. For if it is, if it is the adherence of the law... Who are to be the heirs? Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. So, I mean, you can, you, you can see the most prominent words in these opening verses of, of, of this passage in terms of just how often they appear. Faith and law. Faith and law. It's in verse 13, it's law versus faith. In verse 14, law versus faith. In verse 15, law is mentioned twice before he comes back in verse 16 and comes back to faith versus law. We're going to come back to another prominent word in these verses in just a minute. But for now, Paul is just clearly contrasting again two, two starkly different ways of, 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 of a person trying to receive this justification before God that he talked about in the first part of the chapter. Is it through faith alone? Or is it through some measure of, a, of adherence to the, to the law and the moral law of God? If this was the first time that you were reading through Romans, you had never read this far before, you could almost guess where he was going to go to the answer of those questions. Is it through faith alone, or is it through some adherence to the law? You could almost guess how he's going to answer that question based on what he's already said about the law in chapter 2 and about faith in chapter 3. In verse 13 of our chapter, he goes back to Abraham again. And he's looking back and he's saying, how was Abraham justified before God and declared righteous? Now, it's noteworthy to see again, even before we answer that question, the fact that he's going back to Abraham at all, right? Rather than going back to Moses. That's important. Why? Because Jews in that day, would ha they would have looked back to Abraham, sure. I mean, Abraham was a big deal. They would have looked back to Abraham, but they would have looked back to Abraham for their comfort as 
we're the chosen people of God, right? He's the father of our nation kind of thing. But they would have looked back to Moses and the law that was revealed to him for their efforts to stand righteous before God. They would have looked back to Moses and the law as to how do we receive the favor and blessing of God. Paul challenges that. And he asks the legitimate and obvious question, how was Abraham himself made right with God? How did Abraham himself receive the favor and blessing and righteous standing before God? How was the very founder of our nation made right with God? Because certainly that might teach us something. And he says in verse 13 that it did not come through the law. The law had not even been revealed yet. Moses was not even on the scene yet. So how was Abraham made right before God? If the Jews were right, if they were claiming that the law and keeping the law, adhering to the law is necessary, then how was Abraham, who came before the law, made right with God? And he says in verse 13, it was through the righteousness of faith that he was made well, which is just a shorthand way of saying of Abraham what, what is said of Genesis 15, 6, that his faith, was counted as, his faith was counted as righteousness. It was by faith alone that, that he was justified and counted as righteous before God, not by any kind of works or adherence to the law. And Paul is saying, if that's the principle, that's the principle. If that's the principle, that's the principle. Right? Um, uh, he's, he's saying, that's how, that's how Abraham stood righteous before God, and God hasn't changed. God hasn't moved. And how, any, how anyone is counted as righteous in his sight has not changed. The law was not later brought in through Moses in order to change the rules. Right? More on that in just a second. Paul is asserting, therefore, that Abraham was prior to Moses, and therefore Abraham is the pattern. And he was counted righteous before God by faith alone, apart from any merit, supposed merit, or work. And he follows that up in verse 14, saying that if that were not true, if that were not the case, he says in verse 14, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, heirs meaning heirs of salvation and justification, then he says, if that's true, then faith is null and the promise is void. That's huge. That's huge. Think about both of those phrases. Faith is null, promise is void. He says, faith, why would faith be null if it is through adherence to the law that we stand justified? Faith is null, meaning that if, if being right with God comes through obedience, moral goodness and, 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 and our efforts at that and, and being an adherent of the law, if, then, and if that's true, then God has all of a sudden changed the rules on us, changed the rules on Abraham. It was sufficient for Abraham and all who came before him. Faith alone was sufficient for them, but, but God has now apparently changed the rules to require adherence to the law for us, nullifying faith along the way. There is no middle ground. It's either through faith or it's, or it's through works. Now, the Jews of that day would not want to deny the importance in some way of, of faith, but Paul has put them in a bind here. Um, but it's more than that. He says, faith is null and the promise is void. The promise is void? That's the other, by the way, I said there's another major word in these opening verses. Promise is the other major word. Uh, 
besides faith and law, it's promise. And pr- Paul is saying that if we are made right with God based on the quality of our adherence to the law, then what do you do with the promise that God had made to send the Savior? What do you do with that promise? A promise that was made in Genesis 3.15, that a Savior would one day come through the seed of the woman. You should come on Sunday nights and hear Pastor Brian preach on Genesis. A promise that continued through Noah to his sons. A promise that would continue through Abraham and the son that God promised to give to him and Sarah that would keep that hope of a coming Redeemer alive. And from the time of Genesis 3.15 and certainly into the days of Abraham, sinners found salvation through believing that a Savior was coming and hoping in that Savior to come. And Paul is about to demonstrate thoroughly from the Old Testament text that Abraham was counted righteous through believing that very promise that he and Sarah would have a son through whom a Savior would one day come. What happened to all of that if all of a sudden we are now saved through obedience to the law? Right? There is no need for faith and there is no need for a promise anymore if we are capable of saving ourselves through obedience. If our our standing is is based on that. Paul understands at this point that some are going to wonder then, well then, why the law? What is the purpose of the law? If it's all faith, faith alone, why did he give the law then? Well, not to make us righteous. What does he say in verse 15? To show us our condemnation before God because of our sin. He gave the law. Why? The law brings wrath. Not salvation. It brings wrath, not salvation. But what does he mean when he says there, But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Well, that's debated on what he means by that. I think he's just saying in a different way what he's going to say later in chapter 5, verse 20, if you look over there, when he says the law law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, I don't think Paul is saying without the law, there's no sin. That that would fly in the face of chapter 1, right? I think he's saying that the law came in to make us even more specifically aware of how we are transgressing his commandments. It made us aware of our sin and of the wrath that is upon us. That's why it says the law brings wrath. In other words, the law came in not so that we might think we could earn his salvation, but to convince us completely that we can't, that we cannot and cause us to trust all the more in the promise and know that our only hope is if He will forgive us through our faith in His promise. Right? And not in what we earned and see it all as owing to grace. And that's, that's exactly what Paul says in verse 16. He says that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Grace through faith gives glory to God alone in the salvation of sinners. And Paul finishes verse 16 saying that because justification before God depends on faith by His grace alone, apart from obedience to the law, then it is available to Jews and Gentiles alike. But Paul has demonstrated that justification before God is a a gift to be received by faith alone. The way of justification before God is the way of faith in His promise. But that leads to the next part of our passage where Paul dives a little deeper 
into the nature of that justifying faith. Again, looking at Abraham as our example. Think with me for a minute about the walk of faith from verses 17 to 22. Paul begins verse 17. Um, he began, The first part of verse 17 supports the last point, uh, meaning justification is by grace through faith. It's for Gentiles and Jews alike. He says that, quoting Genesis 17, 5. I've made you the father of many nations. It's not just for the Jews. But notice how in the second half of verse 17, it seems like Paul makes a statement that is intended to grab your attention. He turns the, he turns the attention away from fa- faith per se and on to God himself and, and describes God as he who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You're like, whoa, where is Paul going with that? And it gets a little clearer when you come to verse 18, where he says of Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should be the father of many nations, as he has been told, Genesis 17, 17, so shall your offspring be. Here's what he's doing. Paul is referring back to God's promise to Abraham and Sarah that he would give them a son through whom the promise of a Savior would continue. Only problem is, they were old. They were old. He was 75 in Genesis 12 when God first appeared to him, but it would not be until he was 99, 99 years old, and Sarah 90, right? When God makes the specific promise that they would have a son next year. Next year. I mean, she was long past childbearing time, right? Paul makes that point in verse 19. Abraham was about 100 years old and Sarah was barren at this point. The only way they could believe the promise that God made is to believe that this God who made that promise is a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. If he's right, that's how it's going to have to happen. Right? They had to hope against hope. But that, that, what has always amazed me in these verses are the descriptions of Abraham, especially concerning, concerning what he's talking about, what, we just, what I just described. Verse 19 says, he did not weaken in his faith. Verse 20 said, no distrust made him waver. He grew strong in faith. Verse 21, fully convinced. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it's, and it's verse 22 that says, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And there is a way to read that, by the way, that could be discouraging. Or disconcerting. Because you could look at that and say, well, that's not what my faith always looks like. And, and I mean, I, I, don't, I don't always feel fully convinced. I, sometimes I do feel I waver, and I waver in distrust, and I don't always feel like I'm growing strong in my faith. I feel kind of weak sometimes. And you're telling me that, but because he was the opposite of all those things, that's why he was counted, what? Well... Um, I don't think that's his point at all. If you look at that same string of verses, I think we see something here more encouraging about the walk of faith, not just for Abraham, but for all of us. It starts all the way back 
in the second half of verse 17 where we began. And again, in the second half of verse 17, we were told about God. It, th this was the God in whom he believed, right? Verse 17 says that. The presence of God in whom he believed. And he believed about God that God could give life to the dead and call into existence the things that did not exist. That was his starting point before anything. That was his starting point before anything. He knew God and believed this about him. That was what influenced how then he saw his circumstances. When God promised that two people in their 90s, you're going to have a boy, what helped him not weaken in his faith, as verse 19 says? What, what helped him distrust and make him waver according to verse 20 is it really just because abraham is just really good no I, I again it's prefaced by he knew god clearly in his mind and verse 20 says he remembered the promise of god and that too helped him walk forward in faith fully convinced in verse 21 in other words he knew god which helped him to see his circumstances and now seeing his circumstances he remembered his promise which spurred him on to walk fully convinced. In this light, we can see more clearly why verse 22 says, this is why his faith was counted as righteous. Not because his faith was so pristine, but because it was God in whom he trusted. And, and, and keeping God's word and his promise constant in his mind helped him to persevere without wavering. And so as Paul comes to the end of the passage, he wants to make sure that we know that what was true for Abraham is true for us also. So let's look very quickly at those last verses. And I am very hopeful we're going to have time around our tables this morning. And consider the witness of faith. Paul makes it clear that when God told Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, that his faith was counted to him as righteousness, that's verse 22. When he said that, verse 23 says, that wasn't just for his sake. That was for ours too. And I think this is true in more than one way. The most obvious way is God hasn't changed. I mean, we're, we, we are saved by faith alone, just like Abraham was. Because God hasn't changed. The one who justifies us. Faith alone is similar. It hasn't moved. But also, the nature of that faith is the same. Remember, uh, in that Abraham's faith in God was in a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Well, Abraham trusted God to bring Isaac into existence. You know? We trust in a God who gives life to the dead, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And on that note, Abraham wasn't just looking to Isaac, um, but the one through who would eventually come through Isaac. How do we know that? How do we know that in this passage? Interestingly, um, for a second, look carefully back to the first verse of our passage, verse 13. Paul says in verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world... Let's just stop right there. The heir of what? The world? 
That's interesting. Genesis 12 says that God told Abraham to leave his home and go to the land that he would show him. Land, right? Paul says he was actually promised the world. The Greek there is cosmos. He was promised the cosmos. Abraham knew something. He knew that that land, that, that land was not it. This, this, this physical sun that comes, he's not it. I'm looking through those things to something bigger coming. And Jesus himself said about Abraham in John 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And we see we see, we see that, that same day that Abraham saw, we just see it with a bit more clarity. We know that it was God himself who became man in Jesus Christ, right? And Paul says in verse 25, of the Savior that Abraham looked forward to, the same one we look back on, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was raised from the dead. When he did that, it signaled payment complete for sins. And because payment for sins was complete, justification is guaranteed to all who believe like Abraham. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he began the new creation, the new world that Abraham was looking forward to, the cosmos renewal that he looked forward to that we'll enjoy with him. Hot dog. We got, we got time around our tables. So... Um, I will say you can, uh, you can freely, freely talk about what, what did you, what did you learn about, um, this, what did this, what stuck out to you about this passage? You can say just what, you can do the typical questions. What does it teach us about God? What does it teach me about myself? What does it admonish me to do? Lots of places you could go with this passage. Go there.